0: Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 46 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm one of your hosts. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me,
1: of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And as we're just about to watch the Super Bowl happen on Sunday, I have to say I'm very excited because I am rooting for our um, very famous alumni, Pat Mahomes, gentleman of the century, very nice person.
0: Super Bowl is like a sports thing, right?
1: Yeah, something. They do the sports. I don't know there's goals involved. I'm bad at sports. I'm illiterate with them, in fact.
0: I didn't actually know there was a football season happening this year.
1: <laughs> they they managed. I'm not sure how, but...
0: Alright. Uh, well, they probably have more funding than we do to maintain such things, but we don't need much funding for this, and our mission is that we bring the latest dermatology research directly to your ears every two weeks so that you can listen to it instead of... Uh, having to spend a lot of time flipping through journal articles, et cetera. If you trust us, and I hope that you do, to do that work for you and then pick out the cream of the crop. Michelle. Yes, Luke. Would you consider yourself a board-certified dermatologist?
1: Why, yes, in fact, I would.
0: So I think you became board-certified a few years before I did. So, shortly after I became board certified, I got an email that said, Hey, there's this new thing called Certlink where you can do a few questions like every quarter instead of having to do one giant exam, I don't know, seven or ten years later or whatever. So, hmm. I said, Sure. So, I'm doing the Certlink approach to maintain my certification. How about yourself?
1: I actually have kind of hybrided the thing. So for a very long time, I actually taught the derm exam prep course for the maintenance of certification exam. And then I took that exam in 2019 successfully. Woo! Um, So now I'm in CertLink for, I guess, the next part of my recertification for 10 years from the first one. So probably, I guess, 2030 or something like that. But yeah, so I have done both approaches. I I find merit to both of them.
0: Well, I was doing my CertLink stuff the other day, and they have a list of articles that they feel are appropriate or important for dermatologists to know, especially broken up by subspecialty, and you can sort of pick which articles that you sound think sound most interesting and then ask you some questions about them. But I was happy to see that a good number of the articles on their list were some that we have discussed on Dermosphere. Woo! So if any of you guys are out there cert linking it up, you can find articles um, in some of our episodes. So one of the articles that they mentioned was about acute inflammatory edema, an article that we discussed in episode 11, which is the first article in that episode, they also proposed the article about treatment of actinic keratoses out of the New England Journal. That was a great article. That one we discussed in our demo episode number three, which is available as a bonus episode. That's the second article we discussed there. One of the articles is the BEEP trial, which um, showed that moisturizing babies does sadly not prevent eczema. But we discussed that in episode 24. It's the last article we discussed there. They proposed an article about omatocycline, a new antibiotic to treat skin and soft tissue infections. We discussed that article in our demo episode number two, and then they also proposed the article about petty 3 mutations in CCCA, and we discussed that article in episode three. So we are on top of it,
1: I and saw
0: it. in this episode, we are going to discuss Three of the articles that CertLink thought were a good idea, um, because basically I agreed with them. (laughs) An article about demodicosis in children, about multiple comas, and about sequelae in pediatric lichen sclerosis. So there's a little bit of a pediatric bent to this episode. You can blame me.
1: (laughs) And that's okay.
0: Let's get rolling.
1: So Luke, did you know that you have fallen victim to one of the classic blenders? What's that? You have given a member of the Demodex Society an article about demodecosis and you're expecting me to be brief with it, I'm just kidding, but I'm going to delve a little bit into detail about the Demodex and then I'm going to hit the salient points of the article which is excellently written. Wait, are you
0: really a member of the Demodex Society?
1: Oh yes, so the Demodex Society really exists, Um, so Wilma Bergfeld who trained me as a dermatopathologist loves Demodex mites, a lot of pathologists find them kind of interesting. And we actually have a Demodex Society, everybody that Dr. Wilma felt has trained, which I'm a very proud member of. We have hats with a cute little happy Demodex on them. Sometimes we have reunions. It's a really fun group to belong to. And we even have given little like lectures to each other and stuff. It's really fun. What I'll... is a Demodex, mite? Ah, so let's kind of talk about this. I and mean, you know what? I have a Demodex Society hat. I'm going to put a snapshot of it on the website for us on Facebook. And Excellent. Instagram and Twitter. So, Demodex mites, um, you may know them by their full name. So, the slender, elegant Demodex folliculorum and the petite, industrious Demodex brevis. These are commensal uh, organisms that inhabit the pilosebaceous units, and they are usually going to not cause a lot of problems. So, a commensal organism is a situation where one species gaining benefit and the other one's neither harmed nor benefited. Sometimes they can start to cause problems, and then they go from being a commensal organism to causing demodicosis, including things like rosacea, acne, and marginal blephar- blepharitis.
0: So just to be clear, you're talking about microscopic insects that live on our hair follicles.
1: Yes, and actually, one of my favorite pimping, cl- pimping questions ever um, for my residents and medical students is to ask which class of insects demodex belong to.
0: We better ring the bell.
1: I think we should, and then I will say if they're having trouble coming up with it, I'll go, here's a hint. They've got eight legs.
0: Are you expecting me to answer? I'm waiting. <laughs> oh, well, it's a um, a trick question, right? They're not insects at all. They're arachnids.
1: very good, you're correct. So they are arachnids. They are critters that have eight legs and arachnids is the right, correct answer. So if you have arachnophobia, I hate to break this to you, but you have arachnids all over your body and they're having sex in your hair follicles. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting things they actually bring forth in this article, which I thought was kind of fascinating, um, came out of a pretty cool article that they referenced in their um, sort of resource section by uh, Rzeka Ziatowski and Fleischer um, from 2014 entitled Demodex An Old Pathogen or a New One. And in this article, they actually kind of, some things about demodex first of all it was first identified over 150 years ago and the first reports discussing demodex type mites actually appeared in 1841 authored by none other than friedrich gustav jakob henley a german pathologist and anatomist but don't worry luke he lived from 1809 to 1885 hashtag not a nazi um, so henley also named henley's layer the third outermost layer of the inner root sheath appropriate since you know he also kind of started the whole train rolling with the demodex mites, which are follicular mites. In this article that they had in their reference section, they did notice that the demodex folliculorum caused more of a humoral response with IgG and IgM. And you can remember that because demodex folliculorum are long and skinny like an antibody. And demodex brevis causes more of a cellular response. These are short and closer to round, more like a cell. I like it. You know, just kind of memory device there. Um, so there are both male and female demodex mites. They do what male and female creatures do. They make babies and they usually do that in the follicular openings. The eggs are laid inside the hair follicles or sebaceous glands. And then the little larvae, which have six legs, let, hatch after about three to four days. And then they develop into full eight-legged adults about seven days later. There are primary and secondary demodiceuses demodicosis i don't know if it would be demicodiosis or demodicosis
0: demodicosis
1: like I, I like that the best i like that demodicosis so primary demodicosis is usually specific disorders where demodex mites are the main pathogen the most common of this one is spinulate demodicosis um, and sometimes also referred to also as pityriasis folliculorum so what you see clinically are follicular hyperkeratotic spicules coming out of the hair follicles on the face, neck, and upper back. And if you need to make the diagnosis, you can actually tape strip an area, or some authors have actually put crazy glue on a glass slide, pushed it up against the skin, waited for it to dry, pull it off, and then you look under the microscope and you see all the demodex kind of protruding out of the slide, which is pretty cool. Um, there's also the secondary demodicosis, where you have the mite co-pathogenically influencing another primary disorder, such as rosacea, orificial dermatitis, or marginal blepharitis, things like that. So, demidicoses um, are usually not going to be very prevalent, prevalent in children because demidics mites are usually in low numbers in childhood. The uh, early reports of demidicoses in children were kind of first associated with immunosuppression, especially HIV and leukemia. It's also been seen in Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which, spoiler alert, some of the children in this case series of five children have. And also acute lymphoblastic leukemia, T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and other T-cell suppression or virally induced immunosuppression or chemotherapy. But healthy children have also been reported. And so the authors very nicely present five cases of demodicosis in childhood They go over the clinical presentations the responses to treatment and remind all of the readers slash listeners to this podcast that the papula pustula lesions predominate and we have pustules on noses think demodicosis which i thought was adorable and then in my head i said pustules on noses think demodicosis it's never going to leave i love it okay so i'm not going to individually go through all five children but i'm going to highlight the unifying themes and the authors did a beautiful job of presenting all of these kids.
0: Should we mention the name of the article and the authors?
1: You know, I got so excited about Demedex that I completely forgot to do that. Okay, so the article, <laughs> I feel really um, excited about this. You can probably tell. So this is a case report or case series of Demodexosis in children in pediatric dermatology. The authors are Aniela Douglas and Andrea Zingling. So back to the matter at hand. So the authors here give beautiful presentations of five patients and i'm gonna go over the unifying themes
0: we should say they're out of penn state probably
1: and from penn state yes all right so penn state and i think hershey medical center so exciting great chocolate
0: chocolate yep
1: yep okay so combinations of papules and pustules with scaly patches were predominant findings in all five kids there were varying um, prevalences of those different findings, but the papulopustular eruptions on the face in children, especially those that were refractory to inflammatory disorders, should raise suspicion for demodicosis. So they had five patients. Three were younger children. So the three younger children, a 19-month-old and a two-year-old, both had comorbid cell histiocytosis, and a five-year-old who had cerebral palsy, seizures, and spastic quadriplegia. Those were the three young patients. The two older patients were healthy adolescent teenagers, or adolescents or teenagers aged 11 and 13. And they had the same 13 year old that represented at age 16 with the same condition. In all of the children, if they could decrease the mite burden, it improved the condition. And in all of the children, they were really diagnosed with another condition first. And then the diagnosis of deumaticosis was reached after treatment failure that had been based upon that initial diagnosis. All of the children also had either a KOH or oil prep to help attain the correct diagnosis. And I think that one of the take home points of this article is that that's a very useful technique for looking at especially recalcitrant eruptions with papulopustular findings on children's faces. So that's something that we should consider not just when something's scaly you scrape it, not just when you're thinking about scabies you scrape it, but pustules on noses think demodicosis and get out your slides. So you can make sure that you're not missing the diagnosis.
0: But just if you see like one demodex mite, is that is there like a cutoff? Probably there, not.
1: There's kind of a cutoff actually. They go over a little bit, or, um, a little bit later in the article that they say if you have more than five demodicosis uh, demodex mites uh, in one centimeter squared of skin, that's going to be more likely to be associated with pathogenic activity, and that's actually been accepted as a positive test.
0: But that's like five that are living on your nose, not five that you happen to scrape off, right?
1: Well, five, you might scrape off from a small area. All right. Does that make sense?
0: I'd probably still treat anyway if my suspicion was high enough. It looks like the treatments are pretty safe. They're
1: pretty benign treatments. So one of the other themes was that metronidazole, metronidazole cream, which we like for things that we think are associated with demodex mites, was insufficient by itself in all of the cases where it was used initially. So by itself, it couldn't take care of the problem. All of the patients were treated with some variation of permethrin 5% cream. The most common dosing was one time weekly overnight. Um, the exception was the two-year-old with Langerhans cell histiocytosis. She had more nightly um, kind of application of the permethrin 5% cream. But the most common dosing regimen was 5% cream used once weekly, which makes sense if you think about how we use permethrins for other kinds of, you know, arachnids, scabies, that kind of thing. Um, So I think that that's reasonable to consider that dosing regimen. Once the patients were treated with permethrin, metronidazole was a useful adjuvant and was used as a um, cream in this cohort. I like to highly advocate for the use of cream in patients who are not really, really oily, oily, slicky types of older gentlemen or teenagers because the metronidazole gel will burn the skin of a like a lady patient that has papular pustular but isn't very oily certainly a child you might be using the gel in it's it's Sorry, I, I may have misspoke earlier the the gel is might burn the skin the cream is much more tolerable so i would yep. recommend that the cream is the the method you're going to want to use
0: i agree gels are irritating also i almost always prescribe 0.75% because it's somehow way cheaper than 1%
1: Yeah, 1% is branded, 0.75% is generic, and there is often a a significant price difference. So the recurrences were relatively common in all of these children after successful treatment, and they tended to correspond to the reappearance of the demodex on skin scraping. And they reemphasized that at the end of the article in their discussion, that recurrence is common with this condition. They also noted that both older children were treated also with oral antibiotics, so there may have been some overlap with acne in those children. The differential diagnosis for demodicosis would include rosacea, perioral derm, acne, seborrheic dermatitis, tinea faciei, folliculitis, and impetigo. And it's very easy to make that diagnosis if you think to do the test. Um, again, that was more than five individuals and one centimeter of skin. I loved also that they pointed out that dermoscopy can be used to identify demodex tails. So you can actually see demodex tails protruding from the follicular openings. It looks like a little white filament, like a little teeny tiny piece of fiber optic cable just cut off coming out of the hair follicle opening that was a finding first um, kind of demonstrated by Siegel of Furman et al in the International Journal of Dermatology in 2010. So So
0: just like a little tiny bit of Morgellons disease that you can only appreciate under dermoscopy.
1: I mean, except that it's real, you know, but anyway. um, So I thought that the authors did a beautiful job of presenting this case series. I think it highlights an important and overlooked cause of facial pustular eruptions in children and a relatively benign treatment protocol that can be relatively easily enacted by parents. So I really liked this article.
0: Yeah, so I think the major take-home points are that kids can get demodicosis, and pustules on noses think demodicosis. And then they said the most successful treatment was the permethrin 5% cream once a week for two to four weeks, followed by metronidazole cream for maintenance. Do I remember hearing once that demodicosis have some kind of like symbiotic bacteria and if you kill those bacteria you can also get rid of the demodex mites
1: yes so if you remember what demodex mites eat and the demodex brevis who i share kinship with i feel like because i'm a tiny person and i love food you know so the demodex brevis get right right down in there in the sebaceous gland and they kind of are right there at the food source um so they eat oil so the bacilli that colonize their little guts, which you can see under the microscope, I love teaching with this, are called Bacillus oleronius, And that's bing, actually, bing. oh yeah, sorry. And that's actually one of the targets of some of our therapies um, when we're treating things like rosacea. So that's one of the reasons that using antibiotics sometimes helps. So all the antibiotics we tend to use for rosacea also are anti-inflammatory in one way or another, but some of their benefit probably comes from killing those demodex gut bacteria, the Bacillus oleronius. Neat. <laughs>
0: All right. So here's another CertLink article or just a good article about pediatric dermatology. So this one is also out of the journal, Pediatric Dermatology. It's called Syndromes Associated with Multiple Pilometricomas. When Should Clinicians Be Concerned? The authors include Kevin Syriax, Daniel Knabel, and Megan Waite. And these are folks out of University of North Carolina, the Cleveland Clinic, Woo! your alma mater, and um, Aurora Healthcare in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So uh, and published in 2020. So multiple pilometricomas have been reported to be associated with a number of syndromes. Now we'll figure it out. (laughs) And I have a terrible mnemonic that I invented when I was studying for my board exam about how to remember which syndromes are associated with pilometricomas.
1: I love terrible mnemonics. They're the best. Pile
0: and turn to my garden, Edward Rubenstein. (laughs) It makes no sense but it worked for me so pile is for pilometracomas and turn so turner syndrome to my myotonic dystrophy garden Gardner syndrome edward so edwards syndrome which i thought was associated with it but is not mentioned here at all but is a trisomy syndrome and it turns out that the same um, trisomy can be found in pilometracoma sometimes so maybe that's why i stuck it in there i think it's trisomy 18 could I be
1: right i could be it
0: um, and then Rubenstein, so rubenstein Taby syndrome is the other one. Pile and turn to my garden, Edward Rubenstein. That's cute. <laughs> that was my mnemonic anyways, but now let's figure out the truth. So this is a systematic review where they looked through the literature and they found 128 cases of multiple pilometrachomas in kids. So out of those 128, 66 of them, so about half, had pilometrachomas that were associated with a syndrome. Okay. So 26 of those 128 total cases were familial. So there are multiple people in a family with multiple pilometracomas each, but there was no known syndrome associated with them. And then 36 of the total 128 cases were just sporadic. Somebody with multiple pilometracomas and no family history of the same thing and no syndrome. Of the 66 patients who had a syndrome, 34 of them, so by far the majority, were myotonic dystrophy and nine were Turner syndrome. Six were FAP associated syndrome. So FAP stands for familial adenomatosis polyposis, um, which is a group of syndromes that I guess really predispose you to colorectal cancer. And Gardner syndrome is one, a variant, I guess, of FAP associated syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, So six patients of the 66 had one of those. And then five of the 66 patients with multiple pyeloma comas who had a syndrome had Rubenstein Taby syndrome. So it looks like those associations are probably real. They noted that in many of the cases, about half of them, the pilometrachomas appeared before the diagnosis of the underlying syndrome and the multiple pilometrachomas developed during childhood, oftentimes. So the importance to a dermatologist, especially a pediatric dermatologist, but any dermatologist who sees kids is pretty obvious then. If you can figure out that this patient might have myotonic dystrophy or might have Turner syndrome because you recognize there are multiple pilometricomas, you can make the diagnosis early. And some of these, especially like the FAP-associated syndromes, if you make the diagnosis early, you can impact mortality and morbidity. And perhaps, Michelle, you have heard that multiple pilometricomas have been associated with other syndromes as well. So I feel like at some point I read something about Sotos syndrome and something about Kabuki syndrome. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know what those are, and it's just as well because only one case of each has been reported with multiple pilometricomas, so I don't think the data supports that the association is real, and so I'm just going to forget that those syndromes exist. (laughs) Done. So after they figured this out, they then use math, one of my favorite things to use, and they recommend six pilometricomas as a cutoff for use as a screening tool to really think about these syndromes. So if you say, all right, my screening test is whether or not you have had six or more pilometer the sensitivity of that is 46%, the specificity is 95%, the positive predictive value is 80%, and the negative predictive value is 81%. So shall we have a bell for a brief digression about biostats? I like it. So the sensitivity is basically how likely you are to pick up the real thing. So the sensitivity of 46% isn't great. That means a good number of people who screen positive won't actually have a syndrome associated with it. But there it is. Sometimes that's what you want because you're trying to make sure you capture the people who really do have the syndrome. The specificity is how specific this is to this particular group of syndrome. So in this case, um, if you've got six or more pyelomatercomas, then you've got, I think I misspoke about sensitivity earlier. See, this is hard. Even even I, one of the smartest people in the world, get confused <laughs> about
1: this. Um,
0: so, the sensitivity is 46%, which means you're not going to capture some of the people who actually have the syndrome. However, the specificity is 95%. So, if you do screen positive, there's a 95% chance that that is specific for one of these syndromes. But the sensitivity and specificity don't take into account the prevalence of the underlying syndromes in the total population. So an, perhaps a more useful metric in the real world is the positive and negative predictive value. So a positive predictive value of 81% means that if you screen positive, there's an 81% chance that you really are positive. In this case, means you have a syndrome. And the negative predictive value of 82% similarly means that if you screen negative, there's an 82% chance that you really do don't have an associated syndrome. Does that sound right to you, Michelle? I think you're more used to um, teaching this stuff than I am.
1: That sounds that sounds like that's probably correct. I'm trying to get the data up and then I got, I went down the rabbit hole trying to figure out. Um, so do you know what the other name for pyelometricoma is?
0: Uh, calcifying cyst of malherb or yes. something.
1: Calcifying epithelium of malherb. And actually it wasn't just Melherb. he had a colleague. So it was Melherb and Shenante. So it used to be called the calcifying epithelioma of Melcherb and Shenante, but somehow we lost the second author's name uh, after a while at some point. So I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, basically if you're doing um, the screening test, you know, like a screening test, like if you're doing for breast cancer or something, You want to have high sensitivity but sometimes you have a little bit of lower specificity when that happens and then those people have to go for secondary testing and like the secondary test should have higher specificity than sensitivity because you're really trying to rule something so like we kind of have these like spin and snout like sort of mnemonics that people use
0: right sensitivity rules out specificity rules in Mm -hmm. snout and spin they say um Anyway, I'm going to move on so I don't make more of a fool of myself, but the authors recommend additional screening and or referral to genetics for patients who have six or more pilometricomas or for people who have even a single pilometricoma in the setting of a family history of myotonic dystrophy, first degree relative with colon cancer or FAP related syndrome or family history of pilometricomas and a patient with even one pilometricoma if they have clinical features suggested of Turner or rubinstein tabey syndrome so as a syndrome refresher this is probably worth dinging the bell so myotonic dystrophy is autosomal dominant people get progressive muscle weakness and an inability to relax their muscles so i feel like when i was studying for step one i remember like people couldn't release your hand after shaking it and it can present at any age um Familial adenomatosis polyposis, or Gardner's syndrome, is also autosomal dominant, and it's associated with the APC gene. Apparently, people with that mutation have a 100% risk of developing colorectal cancer at some point. Yikes. So again, if you can identify it early, start those colonoscopies early, you can save some lives, potentially. rubenstein Taby syndrome is sporadic, and the gene is CREB, the CREB gene people have broad thumbs and toes, short stature, a distinctive facies, dental anomalies, and intellectual disability. So if you find a pilometriochrome on somebody with broad thumbs and toes and short stature, you might send them to genetics. And then Turner syndrome is also sporadic, and that's the one where people just have a single X chromosome. Um, But they're female, and their clinical features can be subtle. So the authors say that 90% of people with Turner syndrome have short stature and premature ovarian failure. Sometimes they have widely spaced nipples, a webbed neck. They can have lymphedema, coarctation of the aorta, low posterior hairline, cafe au lait spots, and low set or malrotated ears. And then in teenagehood, they can often have amenorrhea. So if it hasn't presented itself before then, it might show up during adolescence at that point.
1: Very cool. I think that those syndromes are sometimes um, really hard to kind of distinguish from each other. So I thought you reviewed those really nicely. And, you know, the, the association of multiple pyeloma I think, is something I've seen more than once on an educational exercise. So I think this is a high yield article.
0: Yes. So once again, familial or multiple pyeloma are really associated with myotonic dystrophy, Turner syndrome, FIP-associated syndromes, and Rubenstein-Tabey syndromes. Bada bing.
1: Yeah. All right, so Luke, we started out with hematocosis, hair follicle mites. You brought up pyelometricomas, hair follicle neoplasm. Now I'm going to talk about CCCA, hair follicle disorder. Just full circle. Love it. I'm the queen of segues, just kidding. Okay, I'm self-dubbed. So this is a nice article out of JAD case reports. It is entitled Hair Regrowth in Two Patients with Calcitant Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia After Use of Topical Metformin. And the authors are Dr. Sorry, um, actually, it's a BS. So Arroye, I apologize. Um, I think Arroye is the correct pronunciation. And then Dr. Agu. And I am very excited to look over this. This is out of Johns Hopkins and UT Southwestern. So this is a pretty like, interesting foundational, I think, thought process about using this medication in something that's connected to a lot of things that have already been kind of thought about with this medication. So metformin has been used in the past and, pro- and proposed as a potential treatment for people who have problems with uterine fibroids or other hyperproliferative disorders that, in- that kind of include this fibroproliferative axis, so fibroproliferative disorders. And people are starting to notice a little bit more of a connection with CCCA to some of those. And so they wanted to look into possibly using metformin as a therapeutic agent for patients with this condition.
0: I don't think i had ever heard about topical metformin before
1: there may be a reason for that. And we'll get into that as well. Um, So this uses topical metformin. And as soon as I heard topical metformin, I remembered that metformin lives in my kind of closet in my brain that I keep of drugs that smell bad. Um, So one of those being spironolactone. Spironolactone has a really sulfury smell, very sulfuric. Metformin has a really fishy smell, especially certain preparations of it. And so I don't know how they were able to create a topical that patients could tolerate. I know that I've in the past tried to have spironolactone compounded for people to use topically. And a lot of my patients wouldn't use it because of the odor. And so I would like to to know how they either, if they found a formulation that didn't have that characteristic odor or if they were able to mask it in some way. But based off of our review of the articles condition, looking at um, FFA and topical allergic contact dermatitis potentially from fragrancing agents, I think they'd have to tread carefully.
0: Right, hopefully they didn't just dump in a whole bunch of fragrance mix one.
1: Hopefully not. Um, So central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, from here on out referred to as CCCA, as we know is progressive scarring alopecia, usually occurring in women of African descent, and it's relatively insidious. Unlike some other inflammatory alopecias, it doesn't usually have as many symptoms of inflammation, and it's not overtly inflammatory when you look at it clinically. You can pick up some subtle signs of inflammation with trichoscopy. You end up with patients who have end-stage fibrosis, and it's disproportionate to the rate of inflammation. So these patients sort of are often presenting late in the game. So CCCA is going to be classified based off of its distribution. So distribution, if it's in the frontal area, we call that type A CCCA. If it's more vertex, we call it type B CCCA. And then the extent of the area involved um, scaled numerically from zero, which is normal, to five, which is bald scalp. They point out that metformin, which is commonly used for glycemic control in type 2 diabetes, has shown efficacy improving fibrosis in mouse models of fibroproliferative disorders. And they believe that's through the mediation of adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase, AMPK. And so they wanted to present these two cases of hair regrowth after the use of topical metformin for CCCA. So both patients were women over the age of 50 who had stage 4A CCCA. Both of them had progressive hair loss and had both been treated with topical agents, including minoxidil, um, topical steroids, specifically clobetasol, intralesional kenalog, And one of the patients had been treated with Viviscal. Um, the patients hadn't gotten a whole lot better. And so they wanted to try something different. So patient, go ahead.
0: Viviscal is like this marine supplement that's got some data that it can help regrow hair. I think we discussed it an episode or two ago. Yeah,
1: hey, I think it was I think it was in episode forty-four, but that's correct. It's a marine mineral supplement. Um, it has sort of sustainable shark cartilage sourcing or something like that. But they actually are switching to a shark cartilage-free ver- version if people are concerned about that. Uh, so after that kind of attempted treatment. She stopped everything and they started her on 10% metformin cream, initially three times per week, then increased to once daily, and she had substantial regrowth after six months. This brings forward a very important point. Whenever you're treating hair loss patients, you need to really underpromise because hair is slow, especially when people are paying attention to it and they're anxious about it and they want something to work. So whenever I'm working with a hair loss patient... I tell them, if I fixed everything that was causing your hair loss problem right now and put you on the perfect treatment, you might not notice a difference until six months from now. You have got to give this treatment time to work, because if you don't set that stage for success, people will try it for one month or two months, and then they'll give up, say it didn't work, and go on to the next thing or get more frustrated. So that time frame, I think, is very important.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: The second patient, um, she had also used similar topicals, ILK, minoxidil, topical ketoconazole, clobetazole, and um, she came back with marginal improvements. She continued minoxidil and intralesional kenalog, with the addition of the 10% metformin cream once daily, and she had improvement four months after adding that topical metformin. So she actually performed a little more quickly, which is not always going to happen. So like I said, under promise with hair loss treatment. So we know that CCCA is difficult to treat. There's not a lot of really fantastic treatment options. A lot of our therapies are aimed at reducing inflammation, but unlike a lot of other cicatricial alopecias, like LPP, like in planopilaris, discoid lupus, there's a lot of inflammation you can see. In CCCA, fibrosis is more dominant. And this uh, reminded the authors and others of those fibroproliferative disorders, such as uterine fibroids and systemic sclerosis, along with keloids. So I thought that that was very interesting They bring forward this point of previously published results where they showed a five-fold increase in the occurrence of uterine fibroids in women who had CCCA when compared with age, race, and sex-matched control individuals. So there may be some pathogenetic linkage to this, probably mediated through this PRKAA2 gene which encodes that AMPK. case. So that's the gene that encodes the protein, the adenosine monophosphate-activated protein kinase through which the metformin may mediate its effect. So I thought that was very interesting. They also have found that the expression of AMPK is is underrepresented by one third in scalps that have CCCA. So they have reduced activity of AMPK, which may also be part of the pathogenesis of that condition. It has been implicated in the pathogenesis of hepatic fibrosis and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And so the fact that metformin actually works in this way through AMPK activation can actually improve things downstream, and it actually improves a lot of hormonal axes as well, such as insulin sensitivity through glucose reuptake, also can reduce circulating lipids and importantly androgens when you're dealing with a hair loss condition that predominantly affects women. So I think that's another important point. As we know, androgens usually will promote terminal hairs to turn into vellus hairs, which none of us like that transformation. That transformation can just go to heck. So medications that reduce circulating circulating androgens like metformin could help potentially alter that progression of an androgenetic alopecia, as well as potentially, in this case, help mediate a fibrotic condition like CCCA. They actually have also pointed out that in a mouse model of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, metformin was able to reverse um, and accelerate the recovery of the fibrotic process by deactivating an apoptosing myofibroblast. So I thought that was really interesting. And they thought that that was why there could be a role for this drug in CCCA.
0: Yeah. um, It's hard to treat, as you mentioned. So it's cool that there's something topical and it looks like safe. None of their folks had systemic or had side effects that could work.
1: Yeah, they pointed out how that was compounded. It was in lipoderm by PCCA Houston, Texas. I am a Texan. I have no relationship to PCCA in Houston, Texas, but they say that lipoderm is a cream that optimizes transcutaneous absorption, and that's able to be applied topically. They pointed out that neither patient had a telogen effluvium preceding their hair regrowth, so they feel that a lot of the recovery was probably conversion of vellus hairs to terminal follicles, um, they did not assess this with trichoscopy, however, and they point out later that they would like to do further studies utilizing trichoscopy to evaluate for, prog- for progression. The adverse systemic effects of metformin can include, of course, GI distress, nausea, bloating, diarrhea, decreased appetite, rarely lactic acidosis. And they noticed that neither of the patients were taking any of the metformin orally. Neither of them had systemic result, uh, systemic problems with that, no systemic side effects. There was a little bit of scalp dryness with the treatment. They were able to improve that with use of an emollient. And they mentioned that they dosed it based off of the recommendations of pharmacists. I think it's always a good idea to listen to your pharmacists when you're compounding something because sometimes they can't get something into solution at the concentration that you want. And sometimes they understand the pharmacokinetics better because they are pharmacologists. So I think this is a great potential tool to put into the toolbox to treat a difficult and sometimes devastating condition.
0: So, I called one of our local compounding pharmacies to ask how much this would cost, and it's actually pretty cheap, about $35, they said, for a 30 or 45 gram tube of 10% metformin cream. And they also said they often put it into what they call some kind of click tube. Or have you ever heard of these? Like, they're these special medication dispensers where you just like turn them one click and that produces a specific amount of medicine so that you can say okay I want you to use two clicks of topical metformin on your scalp every day or whatever
1: I think I know what you're talking about that would be very nice to actually ensure that people were getting uniform dosage so that's, yeah. that's also a great setup for clinical trials
0: and apparently it increases the cost by just about five bucks so not there it bad. is
1: did they happen to mention if it smelled funny because I just I need to know
0: they did not so I encourage you to buy some yourself and have a whiff <laughs>
1: I will, I'll get back to you with the details.
0: So next, I'd like to discuss an installment in our mini-series about dermatologic adverse events related to anti-cancer agents. Ba-da-ba! <laughs> so this is going to be the, the last in this series. It was just such a great big article that we split it up into several different ones. So the article is Prevention and Management of Dermatological Toxicities Related to Anti-Cancer Agents. ESMO, that's the European Society for Medical Oncology, Clinical Practice Guidelines. Um, so this is a large international multidisciplinary panel. So we've talked about a lot of adverse events in the past four or five episodes. And now I'd like to talk about taxane-induced oncolysis okay. So taxanes include docetaxel and paclitaxel. And apparently getting oncolysis with these medicines is pretty common, about 40% of people. And taxanes are also the meanest anti-cancer agents on the nails by quite a fair margin. People can get various other problems with their nails.
1: Are you telling me that they're quite taxing on the nails?
0: (laughs) They're taxing on the nails. You nailed that, Michelle.
1: (laughs) And, you know, you pay your taxes like, you know, you get money out of your wallet with your hands to pay your taxes. So nails. Okay, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I like it. I like (laughs) it for people studying for exams and stuff. The onycholysis takes a few weeks to appear after you start taking the medicine probably because the nails grow slowly and so they have to like detach and then grow to notice the onycholysis. Affects the fingernails more than the toenails. The pathomechanism is unclear but it seems to be dose related. And this onycholysis associated with taxanes is sometimes also associated with inflammatory erythema of the dorsal hands or the ankles and that's known as patio syndrome P A T E O which stands for periarticular thenar erythema with onycholysis
1: As luck would have it I just pimped my residents about that very disorder
0: Oh very they missed bad. it they missed hearing about it on the episode I'm I sure know All of your residents listen to our podcast They better They better <laughs> or they're not getting honors <laughs> or, or I guess you don't have honors in residency Their milestones are going to be down <laughs> at checkbox 1 All right to prevent this from happening. You moisturize your nails, you can use protective lacquers, but don't use artificial nails, that's bad. You can wear gloves, especially if you're like washing your hands or something. Avoid messing around with your nails if you're on taxane therapy, like don't be biting your nails or wearing artificial nails or using them to pry open your six year old's Legos. There's apparently pretty good data for frozen gloves or frozen socks to help prevent this from happening. So, to get a pair of frozen gloves or socks, they're somewhere between minus 10 and minus 30 degrees Celsius, and then you wear them for 90 minutes, I guess, every day. Um, so, they say everyone on taxanes should be doing this. But the data is that good for frozen gloves and socks. I, I guess if, if you do get this oncolysis from taxanes and you want to do something about it, well, there's not a whole lot. You cut your nail regularly until the nail plate just kind of reattaches itself. You kind of the nail, of course. And if you do, you want to clean and culture the nail plate. And if there's an infection, then, of course, you want to treat it. So that's all about taxane induced onycholysis, And that's all from this article. Their uh, conclusions are that dermatological adverse events... To anti-cancer agents are frequent and they can affect patients at any point during their therapy and they impact quality of life and also adherence to their medications so if you want to check out more of our friends at ESMO's stuff they have a number of social media accounts twitter at my as well as linkedin facebook and instagram so i thought this was a great article and i'm kind of sad to finally bid it goodbye
1: well, beautiful article. We'll have another interesting series coming up, though. I really like the mini series. I think that they do really well as sort of a, a way to kind of intersperse some very useful information. So speaking of interspersing things, um, being a musician, sometimes you will get the criticism that you're not following the kind of director. You're going at a different speed that you are, and you'll get the criticism that, well, I can't keep up with your tempi, which means you're, you, it's the plural of tempo going multiple different speeds at one time.
0: You are the queen of segues. I'm
1: trying so hard on this one. That was a long walk. But um, we do have now a article from JAMA DERM 2020. It is a research letter entitled Tempe Syndrome with Progressive Telangiectasias Associated with Pulmonary Deterioration by authors Michael Lohr and Carol Chang out of David Giffen School of Medicine, Division of Dermatology in UCLA. So Tempe is an acronym. It stands for telangiectasias erythrocytosis with elevated erythropoietin monoclonal gammopathy perinephric fluid collections and intrapulmonary shunting so one more time telangiectasia's erythrocytosis with elevated erythropoietin so there's three e's in that part monoclonal gammopathy perinephric fluid collections and intrapulmonary shunting syndrome so this was recently described as a rare plasma cell neoplasm with perineoplastic features And here the authors present a case of a patient with Tempe syndrome who has classic and atypical findings that track with the progression of his pulmonary symptoms. So this was a 50-year-old man who presented for evaluation of erythrocytosis that had been presumed to be due to polycytemia for the previous 13 years. A few months after that presentation, he developed dyspnea and was found to have an oxygen saturation of 90% to 92% with clubbing of his digits. This was in 2012, so this wasn't COVID. The patient developed then scattered telangiectasias on the chest. The patient was then suspected to have Tempe syndrome, which was confirmed shortly thereafter because they found that he had 12.3% intrapulmonary shunting, along with an IgG kappa monoclonal gammopathy, so monoclonal protein levels of 910 milligrams per deciliter, along with perinephric fluid collections. He was then administered several medications that treat multiple myeloma. The first of the three, all of which unfortunately were unsuccessful, was subcutaneous bortezomib. So this is Velcade. A
0: proteasome inhibitor.
1: That's exactly what I was about to say. And I I really think that, you know, when I think of how this drug works, I think of it sort of like um, when you have a sort of cartoon of a factory and someone throws a wrench or something into the machine and it just all stops working and then the factory explodes. It's kind of in a way like that. Um, Basically, it creates this sort of buildup of misfolded proteins. And then you have this sort of catastrophic sequence of events that kills the cell. Uh, So they tried that for eight months. It did not work. So then they began him on linolinamide, Revlimid. This like pomalidomide is a modified thalidomide substance that did not elicit a response either, unfortunately. Then over the next four years, he was clinically stable until his intrapulmonary shunting decreased further from 12.3 to 40.5. And they initiated treatment with daratumumab, daratumumab, there we go,
0: daratumumab. An IgG antibody against CD38, CD38
1: baby, yes, overexpressed on myeloma cells. Um, trade name is Darzalex, fun, and that causes apoptosis by antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. After four minutes of treatment, he had a mixed response. His M protein and erythropoietin levels got better, but the thalangiectasias and the spider angiomorphology became more prominent on his chest and back, along with those of atypical morphology, which they have a photograph of on his lips. They kind of look like a cross between like Venus lakes and almost like blue rubber bleb lesions. They've got a little bit more substance than typical Venus lake would. And then the spider telangiectasias on his trunk are just epic. They're like huge. They almost look more like a firework than a spider.
0: Yeah, they do. And I, I was thinking angiokeratomas for the spots on his lips. I think they kind of look like that.
1: They don't have a lot of like scale or anything on top, but maybe because of the mucosal. The patient always ha- also has a whole bunch of really interesting-looking moles on his back. So it actually, his back really looks like a picture of fireworks going off in a background of stars, like his moles being the stars and the fireworks being these very large, very arborized telangiectasias.
0: Very poetic.
1: Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, when you can't see the picture, you have to describe it with poetry. So his M-protein and erythropoietin, did improve, but his vascular findings, which are very impressive, unfortunately got worse and his respiratory status similarly worsened. So his interpulmonary shunting wor- worsened again from 40.5 to 55.6. And then unfortunately he passed away. So the authors wanted to highlight Tempe syndrome, which is a multi-system disease. It has early cutaneous findings, which is important because sometimes his dermatologists we can help save a patient by what we know about things that are uncommon for other specialists. So these early cutaneous findings can be helpful in this potentially life-threatening pulmonary syndrome. Progression to interpulmonary shunting and hypoxemia may potentially be avoided with proper treatment. This patient unfortunately seemed recalcitrant to most of those treatments, but many patients respond. And so early recognition and establishment of the diagnosis may really help make a difference in these patients' lives because the telangiectasias in the initial case report series, they were reported out of t- in 12 out of 15 published cases, according to a review that was done in 2018. Um, the, I think also wanted to highlight the more unusual findings in his lips, which hadn't really been associated tightly with Tempe syndrome in the past. They did not biopsy this patient's lips. I understand why this is a person who's struggling to breathe and the lip lesions were not causing worsening of his ability to breathe. So I understand leaving his oral apparatus and his breathing kind of apparatus alone. They want to point out that if patients have these multiple telangiectasias and there's also a monoclonal gammopathy or um, erythrocytosis in the setting of elevated erythropoietin, that should definitely raise concern for the possibility of Tempi. The pathogenesis of why patients get telangiectasia in this syndrome is a little bit poorly understood. They have a couple of hypotheses. One of them suggests that the angiogenic process that's driving the cutaneous findings and intrapulmonary shuntings are the same. Another speculates that the hypoxia is causing telangiectasia by causing superficial dilatation of capillaries because they're induction There's induction of hypoxia-induced factor 1 alpha, which is a transcription factor that regulates angiogenesis. That's also, I think, a possibility. Maybe it's the same pathophysiology that would kind of facilitate collateralization. They wanted to point out that it was also interesting that the patient's clinical lesions worsening as his clinical course worsened potentially supported the fact that the two might share a pathophysiologic association. So I think that this is an important syndrome because it's, you know, predominant catastrophic effects are not in our organ system, I think it hasn't been in our wheelhouse as much, but I think it is something that we should be aware of because the patients may present when they have early relatively mild disease with these striking phalangectasias. and potentially intervening early might help these patients to have a more indolent course.
0: So what am I supposed to do? If I have a patient who has some like spider angiomas, but doesn't have like obvious liver disease or anything do I like just do a good review of systems or do I like check an SPEP or what do you think, Michelle?
1: I think it'd be appropriate to do a good review of systems just to see if they're having problems with their pulmonary function. Um, But I think that if they're as striking as they were in this article, you would potentially want to either see if they've already had laboratory work because a lot of patients are followed regularly, especially um, in adulthood by their regular general practitioner who might have a CBC that would show that polycythemia, and that could start to head your diagnosis in the correct direction. I don't think you would necessarily consider it if a patient didn't have, you know, an elevated red blood cell count, but if you were dealing with a person who has these striking physical findings, maybe they have a little bit of shortness of breath, and their CBC is abnormal, I think it would be reasonable under those circumstances to consider checking an SPEP and a UPEP, and if those are abnormal, referring appropriately.
0: All right. So one of my biggest pet peeves in pediatric dermatology, and I guess adult dermatology, is untreated lichen sclerosis. Me too. It's just so easy to treat. It seems to respond so well to therapy for the most part. And if you don't treat it, it can be bad. How bad? Well maybe a little worse than I initially thought based on this article, which is called The Long-Term Clinical Consequences of Juvenile Vulvar Lichen Sclerosis, a Systematic Review. This is out of the JAD, and the authors include Beth Morrell and A. Posmans out of the Netherlands and Belgium, and this is another article that was recommended to me by our Maintenance of Certification Program. So it was a systemic review of vulvar lichen sclerosis in pediatric patients and they found 37 studies that met their inclusion criteria, which were cohort studies and case series and encompassed about a 1,000 patients. So the data is fairly limited, um, but the main takeaway I got from this is that lichen sclerosis in kids can persist into puberty and adulthood more frequently than I expected. So I think I attended a great talk on pediatric vulvar lichen sclerosis, I think it was at the Society for Pediatric Dermatology, could have been the AAD, where they basically said it can recur after successful treatment. So patients should be examined in the genital area every year until puberty, which is, you know, we think female hormones are somehow protective because, as we know, there's sort of two peaks of developing vulvar lichen sclerosis, childhood and then postmenopausal women. But based on the data from this article, I feel like I would say you should probably have a genital exam like every year if you've ever had this, just because if we miss it, then, you know, it can cause scarring and architectural changes, and that's bad juju. Good news is that while in adults this condition has sometimes been associated with squamous cell carcinoma of the vulva, there have been no reports in that in pediatric patients, but there were. A couple reports of vulvar lichen, scler- vulvar lichen sclerosis associated with SECs in young women, like in their early 20s. So no reports in pediatric patients, but two, I think, in an 18-year-old and a 25-year-old. Total, in all of the literature. So still, not bad. So I usually reassure parents about that when I'm discussing this disease with them, because sometimes they'll look up stuff online and scare themselves. There are several studies that say the vulvar lichen sclerosis does not resolve at puberty. Like I said, it persists something like 30 to 90% of the time. Um, In one study, relapses occurred in about a third of patients who were followed for about five years. So again, they should just be checked. I, you know, when it's a four-year-old girl, they don't care that I'm a male doctor. But the closer people seem to get to puberty, the more nervous they are about letting me... Take a look in the area. And it doesn't really have to be me. It just needs to be somebody who's familiar enough with the disease that they could identify it. So, usually, I say that's the PCP. So, after we hopefully clear up the patient's lichen sclerosis with clebatazole, I just say make sure, you know, at their well child check every year they get checked. And now it should just be every year, even after you become an adult. Scarring was reported in 20 to 50% of patients in these studies. It was more common in adults, and we know that treatment helps. And they say that maintenance treatment with steroids or calcineurin inhibitors might help. Um, I don't know how I feel about maintenance therapy. Certainly, I don't want people to get lichen sclerosis again. But if a third of patients relapse, then you're sort of treating two-thirds of people unnecessarily if the maintenance therapy is just to prevent relapse. And if it's maintenance for like active disease, and I feel like we should like get the disease gone with actual treatment rather than maintenance stuff. So I wasn't quite sure how I thought about that.
1: I think that um, there's this sort of paradigm that some people use, you you know, this treating atopic dermatitis where, you know, you know where the condition likes to home to. So after you get the condition stable, you treat once or twice a week in that area. I feel like that would probably be relatively mild in terms of side effects, but I think it's probably, you know, I agree with you that it needs to be evaluated every year.
0: A couple other interesting bits. The lifetime risk of vulvar squamous cell carcinoma in women with undertreated or untreated vulvar lichen sclerosis. Okay, so this is adult women. What's the risk if they're going to get a squam? If you don't treat their lichen sclerosis, Is 2 to 5%. And the general female population, it's 0.3%. So definitely elevated. And they, a longer... Duration of you having vulvar lichen sclerosis seems to correlate with greater risk. So, again, that suggests that we need to be extra vigilant with our younger patients. And they point out that 15% of patients um, who develop lichen sclerosis do so before puberty. So, I guess the two peaks are about 15% in pre pubertal girls and, you know, 80% plus in postmenopausal women. I think that. I think I've had one one patient who is an adult woman and seems to develop it during adulthood.
1: I think this brings for, forward maybe potentially another concern where whenever I've had a patient that has a pediatric gynecologic disease, I always strongly advocate for the HPV vaccine, but I think if they have a coexistent dermatosis that may predispose them to the development of squamous cell carcinoma, it behooves the parents even more significantly to get the child fully vaccinated.
0: We've talked about the HPV vaccine or Gardasil before, and you'll be proud of me, Michelle. I finally went and got mine.
1: Yay! You know, that gets an extra ring of the pimp bell. I'm proud right. of
0: um, Not because I like to have plenty of unprotected sex with anonymous partners, um, but because of the data that we've discussed in previous articles that it can help prevent sort of more run-of-the-mill warts. And, you know, as dermatologists, we're interacting with all kinds of warts all the time.
1: Well, and I just think that any healthcare practitioner that takes care of head and neck skin cancer, We should all just have this vaccine you know because we don't really 100% know how laser plumes and cautery plumes and stuff facilitate viral transfer and it's just it's not that expensive it has it's a very safe vaccine and i think we should just all have it
0: i believe mine cost me zero dollars or five (laughs) dollars good job but of course since i'm an adult it's a series of three shots uh, two months and then at four months after that so at month two and month six just some extra, extra pivable tidbits for you. Also, I don't know if this matters by state, um, but I just walked up to a pharmacy and asked for it. I didn't have to prescribe it for myself or have someone else prescribe it or get it from a doctor's office. So this is what I tell my patients now as well. Just, just go up and ask for it.
1: I think so long as you're on schedule for it, that does work. So if you're, if you fall on the age range that the vaccine is approved for administration, then you can go to most pharmacies can administer it. That's definitely the case in Texas. I believe that's the case nationally. I'm not 100% positive. If you're off schedule, you need to arrange for it with a doctor that administers the vaccine. For ladies gynecologists, it's an easy thing to figure out. For gentlemen, you might have to work with your primary care doctor.
0: Well, it's approved for ages 9 to 45 in both genders. So go forth and get vaccinated. Um, also for COVID, hopefully we're rolling along there too. All right, that's all for today. So today we learned that Pustules on noses, think (laughs) demodicosis in children, treat with permethrin weekly for a few weeks, and then topical metronidazole. We learned that multiple pilometracomas are indeed associated with biotonic dystrophy Turner syndrome, FAP-associated syndromes, and Rubenstein-Tabey syndrome. We learned that topical metformin, of all stinky things, (laughs) could be a treatment for CCCA. And we learned that taxanes induce onacolysis, and you can wear frozen gloves to help prevent that. We learned about Tempe syndrome, telangiectasias, erythrocytosis, monoclonal gammopathy, perinephric fluid collection, and intrapulmonary shunting. Watch out for those spider telangiectasias in people with pulmonary syndromes. And we learned that juvenile vulvar lichen sclerosis has a chance of recurrence and persistence into puberty and adulthood that's significantly greater than I expected. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. Um, if you want to listen to more of Dermosphere, and of course, why wouldn't you? You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, where you can find our entire archive, including some fun bonuses like the bonus episodes and also our award winners and fun things like that. You can also look us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps those social media accounts rolling along. And thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. We will see you guys in two weeks.